Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we are going to talk about the Matildas. We're going to talk about the Bruce Lerman case, which is a huge one. The poison mushrooms. Oh my God. (laughs) Mark Latham being removed as the One Nation leader. Then the whole Tory Linares and Megan Thee Stallion. I can't wait for you to take me through this. But first, what's your personal headline of the week, Sarah? My personal headline of the week. I got to go to my first premiere. (laughs) That just sounds so bougie. Um, The Inspired Boys have come up with their new TV show. Yes. Really funny, by the way. Loved it. Um, But it was really funny because... They didn't put a dress code on this invite. Oh, man. (laughs) Come on, give us the details that we need. They just said dress to impress, which I was like, I don't know what that means. Yes. So I messaged one of the girls and was like, what are you wearing? And she sent back, it was kind of like black tie look. And I was like, okay, cool. I love that. Like, I can't, I love dressing up. And I wasn't wrong when I arrived. Like, there was plenty of people really dressed up. But there was also plenty of people not dressed up. And at first when I was walking towards the theatre, I was like, oh my God, I could only see people dressed really casually and I'm in like a silk ball (laughs) gown and I was like, fuck. (laughs) But it was still really fun and I'm glad I dressed up. But yeah, that was my headline of the week. Oh my God. No, I loved it because we'd recorded the the whole podcast. It was a very stressful day and then you were turning around and you were like immediately going from one stress to the next stress of like, what if, and I was like, Sarah, it's a black dress. It's a really nice black dress. It kind of works with a bunch of different dress codes and you were like, what if I'm out of place? And you were so funny. He's like, I think because we had so much adrenaline after last way because obviously because of this so I was like like a mix of anxiety and a mix of excitement and then you add like three or four champagnes to that (laughs) and I looked manic in my eyes like I was like how's everyone going and they're like what emotion are you are you okay it was very scary (laughs) for everyone else I really (laughs) like that all right what's yours um oh I'm back on hinge after (gasps) I okay Okay. This is terrible, but like I deleted Hinge so many times off my phone that Optus blocked the verification codes. <laughs> so like I actually couldn't get on a dating app because I was really good for a period of time because Optus was like, why do you keep getting these codes sent from this random number? Because I kept deleting and redownloading. <laughs> is that the, the standard girl practice? Because I don't know if it's just me, but I'm constantly like Re- getting deleting. serious. Yeah, deleting and redownloading because I get like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be on this. I need a break. And then I'm like, oh, it's like a bit fun to swipe. No, I think everyone does that. I would just pause it for like months on end and then remember it was there. No, but I'm like, I go on for an hour and I'm like, I can't do this. And so I've been banned from Hinge for a few weeks because of Optus. And then I finally contacted Optus and I had to tell a bot. <laughs> please let me back into please, Hinge. Please stop blocking the verification codes from Hinge. And I've decided I'm going to swipe with purpose and not be a scaredy cat. Good. It's really inspiring personal headline. That was, that you know was. What? It's not about being number two on the podcast charts. In Australia. It's not about the third week of being bestseller on Booktopia. That- it's about Hinge. That should have been our headlines, actually. I love that we've just given the most like nonsensical headlines. We should have said thank you to everyone who For listening to the podcast. Rated, followed. Yeah. Bigger than what we were ever expecting. It so. is bigger. So I love that we've gone for like these address code and being able to go on Hinge inside us. Well, anyway, well, let's get into it. Let's get into it. The Matildas are through to the semi-finals of the FIFA Women's World Cup after sending the entire country into cardiac arrest on Saturday night in their penalty shootout against France. 
Oh my god, you watched the game? I watched the This was the first Matilda's game I'd watched. No, but I'm really thing. glad you got behind it. It doesn't matter whenever of you course, bandwagon. No, I'm right? so behind it. I'm like mad that I didn't watch earlier. No. I loved it. It was so but it was genuinely, I think most people who watch that game can agree it's one of the greatest sporting matches of all time. I, I totally get what you mean though, because I went from like not knowing anything about the game to being like, they're gonna go to a shootout. They're gonna go to a shootout. <laughs> how, many, how many 15 minute extra times do we do before the shootout? It was actually um the longest penalty shootout in World Cup history men's or women's. Wow. Um, and so basically it was a nil all outcome, but we won 7-6 in penalties. The other stat that's really important is that from preliminary data, it reached an audience of more than 7.2 million people across Channel 7, but that actually doesn't include pubs and club stats. Wow. And also that... Um, the pub I was in was packed. And, you know, there's a lot of other sporting matches going on around the country and, like, Rod Laver Arena was opened up and, like, the MCG and SCG, they, they played the games during the, the other matches that were taking place. Mm. Um, the figures actually made it the top television program for the year because it eclipsed last week's game against Denmark, but it also was something like the most highly viewed piece of sport sporting television in more than a decade. Shit. Yeah, so the I think that the like the record holder is Kathy Freeman's 400 metre gold medal win at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. So that reached an audience of 8 million. So actually kind of what we're aiming for tomorrow night is to beat that. I think we will. Yeah, and I, I mean I, I undoubtedly because I also think that people will be going to pubs or staying at home to watch the game. It won't be as big mm. of a night because Saturday there was a lot of other events going on. Yeah. And like just to get clear on what's happening from here as well, just so everyone's across it. Sweden and Spain will play in the other semi-final tonight. Whoever wins that game will go to the World Cup final, which will be played on Sunday night. And whoever wins tomorrow night when we play England will go to the World Cup final. Now, everyone also wants to know about the public holiday. Yes. So we will apparently know tomorrow afternoon because National Cabinet is meeting, which is the Prime Minister and the Premiers. So it's not actually up to Anthony Albanese to decide if we get a public holiday, but it is up to him to be like, come on, guys. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So if you're a living, breathing person, get behind the game tomorrow night. If you haven't been watching That's Okay, I would just say tomorrow night's the night to watch. With 1989 Taylor's version release date announced, another Olivia Rodrigo single dropped, and Lord now teasing new music, 2023 continues to be a huge year for teenage girls who also happen to be in their 20s. <laughs> it's me. It's all of us. It's all of us. It's really all of us. Okay, so the 1989 re-record will officially be out on October 27, as announced at the final show of her US leg of her tour in LA. As we know with Taylor, nothing is a coincidence, so the release date for the new album is also the original album's ninth anniversary, which originally came out in 2014. Oh, that's such a Tumblr era. I know. I just, that like, was such oh, peak yes. Polaroid. Yes. Oh, I loved it so much. I also don't think 1989 being the next re-record was a big surprise. Like, she really dropped hints on that for a while. The one I remember was she posted photos and Polaroids from her 4th of July party with her friends, um, many of whom were the original members of Taylor's squad, if you want to really go back to 2014. Remember the Bad Blood Girl squad at the time? God, that was iconic. Every Victoria's Secret model ever. Yeah, it's Um, a really (laughs) inclusive, diverse crowd, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Anyway, unsurprisingly, seven songs from 1989 are now charting on the global Spotify following. Style, Blank Space, Shake It Off, New Romantics, Bad Blood, Wildest Dreams, Out of the Woods. Just every song of those I just love so much. Oh, my gosh. And it's apparently five Vault from the Vault tracks? Yes. So yeah. five from the Vault tracks. She's also said that, like, these five from the Vault tracks are, like, insane and she can't believe they were left behind. So she oh. said this is her favourite re-recording to date. And I'm just <gasps> that guess. Okay, but I want to get to my favourite thing from that concert because, yes, 1989 was announced, but more importantly... 
Carly Kloss was in attendance. Now, okay, I've been seeing this all over, but my question is, she was in like section 200, right? So she wasn't in like the no, artist okay, tent. Yes, Sorry, you're going to be sure you But there were other celebrities around her. Like she wasn't in terrible seating, but she definitely wasn't in the VIP tent. But then apparently she did go down to the VIP tent. But there was like other celebrities, like Sandra Oh and stuff was near her. However, yes. Did she queue in Ticketmaster? Like <laughs> normal civilians? Or did she buy $1,000 so. resale tickets? That's just, my question of the day. I have so anyway. many questions. But I just love, I want to know what happened between them. I don't really care for the whole Gayla story. No, I don't think that's... I actually think it's inappropriate that members of the public who call themselves fans are speculating about her sexuality. It's not mm. your business and she has a private life and I think people feel really entitled to that information and it's actually really inappropriate. That's no. my take on that. I agree. My only fascination with it is that you go from being... Taylor had a spare room for Carly in her house. They did the bow cover together. They were inseparable. And yeah. suddenly, like, Carly's getting married and Taylor's not there and the whole Scooter Braun thing. And I think it's a really interesting saga. I'm interested in the friendship breakdown. Same. I'm not interested in the... Yeah, I completely agree. Exactly. But, yeah, the 1989 new cover looks amazing. Um, I'm really hoping Harry Styles makes an appearance yes, on the this new is the, this is the, the big thing, isn't it? I know. Well, I, just Style. the way she brought Taylor Lautner back, but... My life. I know Harry's changed. different, but still. No, I think it's got to happen. Do you reckon? Yep. I, I think, think they have an amicable it. relationship. We've seen them speaking multiple times. And I also just want to add, because I saw this amazing TikTok, with the re-recordings, she only has her name and reputation to take back now. I did see that TikTok <laughs> too. <laughs> On separate note, also a big shout out to Olivia Rodrigo. She's put out a new banger called Bad Idea Right. It's so catchy. I'm off the belief if you don't like that song, you don't like fun. Um, <laughs> it's just so fun. It's so good. It's gone to number one on Spotify. And then Lord has also teased new music. Are you a Lord fan? Yes, okay. I'm a massive Lord fan. I'm a huge Lord fan. Um, she's put out these photos and she played two new songs at the Broadmasters Festival in Newquay, UK. And they're called Silver Moon and Invisible Ink. They sound very reminiscent of her going back to like melodrama oh, Thank roots. God, that's my favourite album. That's my favourite album of all time, yep. I'm pretty sure. So... Really excited for that. She's also archived all but one post relating to her solar power era. So it definitely looks like she's doing, you know, when the celebrities do the wipeout of their Instagram, it's like I new era coming. I find that fascinating when they do a full wipeout. I'm like, come on, you've got a legacy you're deleting just for funsies, for marketing <laughs> purposes. Forget I about that. It's a new era. So <laughs> like, weird. Anyway, can't wait. Bruce Lerman is planning to sue the Australian Capital Territory over their handling of Brittany Higgins' sexual assault claims following the release and controversial findings of the independent inquiry into the investigation. I guess the first question that's the really obvious one here, just to get people up to speed with what's happened. So in regards to the initial trial, what was the outcome? Just a reminder and refresher. So in 2021, Brittany Higgins alleged that Bruce Lerman had raped her inside Parliament House in the parliamentary office of Senator Linda Reynolds in the early hours of Saturday, the 23rd of March, 2019. A trial was held in the ACT over the course of three weeks. Bruce Lerman had pleaded not guilty to one charge of sexual intercourse without consent, and he has consistently denied the allegations and that any sexual activity occurred. Now, the trial was abandoned in December of 2022 when a juror brought two academic research papers on sexual assault into the deliberation room. Chief Justice Lucy McCallum had told jurors at least 17 times that they were not permitted to undertake external research and this misconduct forced the judge to declare a mistrial. That seems like I know external research. Usually when I think of that, I think of like asking around. I wouldn't think doing like an academic reading would be that detrimental. It was actually on false accusations. The idea of a jury is that 
they are the antidote to like the legal professionals and the prejudice. They're just supposed to come in as normal people and a normal cross-section of society and hear evidence and make a determination based on that evidence. It's not supposed to be about like you're not supposed to take your phone or do external research mm. or know anything about and this was a you know, there was so much media around this that it was hard enough to get people that were as objective as possible. Like, can you ever get objectivity, right? Mm. But this was clear misconduct when you're not supposed to bring 17 it in. Seventeen times. Seventeen times. Jesus. Yeah. So the ACT Director of Public Prosecution, Shane Drumgold, formally announced there would be no retrial and that the charges against Lerman would be withdrawn, stating that a second trial would pose an unacceptable risk to Higgins's health. So did he declare that or did Higgins say that's what she wanted? I think what's important to remember here is it's not Brittany Higgins against Bruce Lerman. Mm. It's the state. So Drumgold, as the DPP, is representing the state and the state tries criminals, right? Mm. So... The state of the ACT is basically attempting to prosecute Bruce Lerman. So it's not up to Brittany Higgins. She's actually a witness. So what they're looking at here is, okay, this witness as the complainant, if we ran a second trial, what is the risk to all the parties involved? And basically Shane Drumgold makes the determination that if we run this and attempt to prosecute this individual, we are putting her in danger because mm. her mental health and psychological health is in danger. And it, that, that risk is not acceptable to take on in order to prosecute him. And so withdrawing is the like safest bet, basically. Right. We don't know what the conversations behind closed yeah. doors were with Brittany. We don't know what involvement she had in that decision. Like, we'll never know that, mm. right? But essentially, it's not Brittany that came forward and said it. It's Shane Drumgold. What's now happened is there's been an independent inquiry into the handling of the matter. And what that inquiry was trying to look at was basically last year in December, the DPP raised concerns about the conduct of the ACT police. And the ACT police also raised concerns about the conduct of the DPP. Now, it's a bit difficult to understand, but the police investigate matters, the DPP prosecute matters, right? And they have a clear relationship, but it's also separate. And when they're raising concerns about each other, they're supposed to be working together collaboratively and it's supposed to be some sort of like, it's a, it's basically a pipeline and different arms of the criminal justice system. So this was a massive conflict because this is not how these organisations are supposed to work together. Mm. So an independent inquiry was established and the ACT government basically said the inquiry was to ensure that the territory's framework is robust, fair and respects the rights of those involved. Specifically, the inquiry will examine the conduct of criminal justice agencies involved in the trial of R and Lerman. And it was run by a man named Walter Sofronoff, who was a retired Queensland judge. Now, this is where it gets even more uh, tricky is putting it lightly. The report came out made a number of findings, most significantly that it was appropriate to proceed with prosecution of Lerman. So there was this argument potentially that there wasn't enough evidence to like actually run the case, but that was found to be above board. But it also found that Shane Drumgold, the DPP, had engaged in serious misconduct. It included that he had lost objectivity and did not act with fairness and detachment as was required by his role, and he kept the defence in the dark about steps he was taking to deny them documents, basically. It's huge. It's huge. It's, it, he's also resigned from his position following this. But there's an even bigger controversy here which kind of overshadows the report itself, and that is... The government stated they had received the report and it was expected to be publicly released in late August, right? It was also expected that parties would be provided with a final copy of the report before it was publicised. But instead, a couple of weeks ago, 
stories started to come out through the media of what was included in the report. So news.com.au went first. And said anonymous, right? Yeah, so they cited an anonymous source and sort of recalled some findings from Sofronov. We also saw it from The Australian, and it turned out that Walter Sofronov had provided embargoed copies of the report to journalists at The Australian and the ABC without the authorisation of the ACT government, and before the report had even been provided to the Chief Minister, which is the Premier of the ACT, basically. Why would he do that? Right. This is the question. And also, like, I want to note, I, this is a bit controversial, but I want to note, the journalist at The Australian he provided to is named Janet Albrechtson. She has published, I believe it's over 20 anti-Britney Higgins columns. Right? I just want to note that, that this is a particularly controversial figure in, from The Australian as well. So... The Australian published a detailed story on the findings before the report was released, like a week before, but insists they did not breach the embargo. Now, Bruce Lerman has said he's going to sue the ACT and he's instructed his lawyers to sue the ACT over the handling. Well, yeah, that was the main news I saw out of this. So what standing would he have to sue? Also, what is the whole thing? Like, there was actually a message and they said with Bruce Lerman openly saying he wants to take a lie detector test. Yeah. Does that show a huge bluff or does that show that this story is more complicated than we think? I think the story is complicated because the report itself, like, obviously is showing misconduct from the part of the DPP. And that's really where Bruce Lerman is finding this ability to instruct his lawyers to sue, right? Because he's saying, my life is ruined, my reputation is ruined, I may never work again, which is which are big claims. Mm. But... You know, from looking at this report alone, without this Walter Sofronoff controversy and scandal, it appears that it's misconduct and he has grounds to sue because if his reputation and sort of livelihood has been impacted and the matter hasn't been handled correctly, there is a conflict there, right, mm. potentially. Mm. The lie detector thing, I don't know. I think it's easy to get on television and claim to do that when that's actually not a part of legal processes in Australia, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it's very easy to be like on you know Sunrise or Breakfast TV, be like, I'm willing to do anything. It's another thing to actually do you it. Know, especially when during the criminal trial he did not take the stand. Yes. He has a right to silence and he utilised that. And I think it's a bit bold to go from I'll take a lie detector test from someone who wouldn't get up on the stand and give their side of the story, yeah. right? But I think that... There's also something to be spoken about here where I think the idea of this inquiry was that the public had major concerns for the way that the criminal justice system was working and functioning coming from this story about Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lerman and how it all unfolded, right? And I think the idea of the inquiry was to get to the bottom of this, but was to restore the faith that the mm. public had, right? And from my perspective, as much as I want to engage with like the complexity of this, how can we as the public trust a report and trust the outcome of this and say it's above board and that it's been handled well when the author of that report and the person entrusted with this inquiry is potentially going to face charges for their, for their handling of yeah. the report. Like he is potentially going to face either the ACT's Integrity Commission or formal charges, but also in a process that was supposed to restore our faith and make us trust this system, all I've felt it's done is open a bigger chasm between the public and the law. It's just so easy to just not keep up with it now Yeah, because it's too complicated. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think so many people are disengaged because legal language is so overly and ridiculously complex because people, I think politics and law want us to feel scared of it and want us to not engage in and critique it. And mm. so it's easy just to be like, that's too much for me and step away, but this is actually the time to step up, I think. And it feels like an even bigger grey area now that, unfortunately, for Higgins, this is going to feel 
awful because it leaves so much more room for speculation. Absolutely. And now I also want to point out, because I know that there's so much to this story and it's really overwhelming, but I just stay with me for one more bit. There's also Senator Linda Reynolds. Yeah. Which is basically that Linda Reynolds also has come out, I think last week, and said she's suing Brittany Higgins for defamation. She's also got multiple actions already running. Everyone's got multiple actions running at the moment. But Linda Reynolds is suing Brittany Higgins for defamation over two social media posts made by Brittany Higgins in July. Reynolds is claiming the comments are a breach of the final date of release signed by herself and Higgins because there's a non-disparagement clause within that agreement. Non-disparagement basically means I promise not to say bad things about you and you promise not to say bad things about me. Also, I want to say, Linda Reynolds, when she was making a submission to the Sofranoff inquiry, she actually argued that the ACT Crimes Act should be amended to deter individuals from using the media to tell their story and she wanted it to be a criminal offence for alleged victims to use the media this way and to basically ensure that they had to formally report something that happened to them. She literally suggested that victim stories should be sort of taken out of their own hands and agency and that you have to report to police if something's happened to you. Like, this is the kind of person we're dealing with, someone that called Brittany Higgins a lying cow. She has just at no point remained quiet. And I think the other takeaway from this is... Without commenting on guilt, there's no... I don't have any commentary on whether Bruce Lemon is guilty. But I do want to say to people who are survivors of sexual violence who are watching this unfold, it is like a fact that people will not want to tell their story because of this. It just goes forever and ever and for what? There's (laughs) such little balance. Like, you know, how can we feel... How can there be any trust? And it's so ironic because the whole point of this story being back in the news and the inquiry was to try and stop us feeling this way. Exactly. I I wish there was a more positive note to end on, but I think we just have to watch it unfold and keep our eyes peeled and stay really attentive to the language and what's happening. Three people have died and another remains in a critical but stable condition after a woman is suspected of serving poisonous mushrooms to her in-laws in Victoria. This story story is is, an interesting one. It's huge. Like, and not only has this been huge in Australia, this story's gone international. Like, Mm -hmm. people cannot get enough of this story. But in a nutshell, three deaths are being investigated. That's Heather Wilkinson, Gail Patterson, and Don Patterson, while one person, Ian Wilkinson, remains in critical condition. What we know is that these deaths took place following a lunch and that the victim's symptoms are consistent with eating death cap mushrooms. Which, according to the Victorian Health Department, death cap mushrooms cause an organ failure within 24 to 48 hours. This feels like a, like a quicksand, you know, like, you know, you just like, <laughs> like oh, I didn't know about this, but it's like a big part of life now. Like, you know, know. Like... <laughs> Good way of putting it. Okay, a who's who before we get into it. Both Gail and Don were the woman suspected of serving the fatal mushroom Aaron Patterson's in-laws, and then Heather was Gail's sister and Ian Heather's husband. I feel like this is a really sad story. It is a tragedy, right? And But I also understand that there's been so much interest and momentum building on TikTok and like just general commentary. I feel like everyone's talking about this story and no one's kind of got the facts right either. No, it's so confusing. Can you like explain to me why? Why this has got so much traction. Well, I think it's because the victims were all relatives, as we know. So at first glance, it does look a little on the nose that this woman has just accidentally killed off her (laughs) in-laws. That's a juicy sentence. Yeah. Also, at first, this story seemed wild because it was reported that her children were served a completely different meal and that she didn't have the meal at all, which, like... 
bit of a mystery. That yeah. seems a little convenient. And then also not a necessary add-on, but just to help paint the picture for everyone. If you'd like to know, they were having Beef Wellington with mushrooms Delicious. I actually love Beef Wellington. <laughs> and then people also thought it was suspicious that Erin at first refused to address where she got these mushrooms from, whether she'd picked them, whether she'd got them from the supermarket. So a lot of people assumed that she'd foraged them herself, which then led to like urgent warnings about death cat mushrooms because in her defence, apparently they do closely resemble a straw mushroom when young and a white-filled mushroom when matured. So could have potentially been an easy mix-up if she'd foraged them herself. Okay. And then in the midst of all of this and like, I know I'm getting into conspiracy territory right now, but just like why everyone's Mm -hmm. commenting on this story so much. I read in a Perth Now article that a Facebook post from Erin's former husband, Simon Patterson, has resurfaced in which he reveals that he had a mystery illness that put him in intensive care for 21 days while suffering from an undiagnosed stomach issue. Holy Christ. This is seriously like, it's a web. It's a web. You can see the Netflix plot line. It's okay. And like his status said, I had three emergency operations, mainly on my small intestine, plus an additional planned operation. My family were asked to come say goodbye to me twice and I was not expected to live. They then separated shortly afterwards. Oh, my God. I will say, though, the Perth Now article did go on to clarify that they are not suggesting that Aaron tried to poison Simon, only that the recent deaths have made him question whether his illness last year may have been due to inadvertently ingesting toxic mushrooms that are known to grow in Leongatha, which is the small country town they're from. <sighs> so that's the, like the conspiracy side of it, pretty much. There is a latest in this story, though. In a written statement sent to the Victoria Police on Friday, which was obtained by the ABC, she's now come out and given her version of events. And she said the reason she didn't clarify this before is because the police told her to give no comment, which makes sense as well. But she said that she's devastated to think that these mushrooms may have contributed to the illness suffered by my loved ones. I really want to repeat that I had absolutely no reason to hurt these people whom I loved. Contrary to the initial reports from police, she also then said that her children were not present and did not eat the meal. They had gone to the movies prior, so apparently they weren't actually there. She also says that she did eat the meal herself and she was also hospitalised. She said that, but I feel like we would have known that immediately. That's what seems weird because that's not what the police said at the beginning. They said the children were present and there was no mention of her also being sick. But that's what she's saying. It's also noteworthy to say that police are currently treating these deaths as unexplained and not necessarily suspicious. So... Interesting. Also, like, my limited understanding of this story before today was there was just a bunch of people saying things to me that were running wildly with the facts. Like, to say that it was, you know, pretty exaggerated, like, for example, even this morning, someone said to us, oh, um, and what about the dehydrator that she threw out? And the police found it at the tip. Isn't that suspicious? And then we, like, looked into it and it was like, police just found a dehydrator. (laughs) Well, I think that's it. I think... I can see why people are gripping to this story because it reads like a whodunit novel. Like it reads like a total mystery novel. I also think especially considering that Leon Gatha is a very small, sleepy town. So this would have just rocked it. Like I this. love this. I love that you said small, sleepy town. That is the opening of a Jane Harper novel. No, like, I know. I'm just serious, so in that Nancy Drew. Now. I love <laughs> like, that. Also, in that same Perth Now article, the journalist like commented on how this truly was the talk of the town, and like people are like, all the neighbors are like, who's done it? Do I believe her? Like, yeah, oh, it's, yeah. The story is there, and it's actually um, sad because three people have died, and we're like exactly in a small, sleepy town. Exactly. <laughs> and then like the Daily Mail has obviously been reporting things like how she was wanting to get back together with her ex-husband which was the reason for the 
lunch. Like there are essay long headlines. There is so much in it. However, despite how much this sounds like a novel I would 100% read, like this story is tragic. People have died. And I don't think it's fair to give her a trial by media. Totally. Mark Latham has been removed as the One Nation leader in the New South Wales Parliament after Federal Leader Pauline Hanson intervened, citing the performance of the party at the last election. (sighs) All right, back to basics. What is One Nation? So it's actually Pauline Hanson's party. If you don't know Pauline Hanson, which you definitely do, she was a former fish and chip shop owner. I learnt that today. Fun fact. I actually didn't know that. It's hilarious. When I think of Pauline Hanson, I just think of that video of her being like, for the girls. (laughs) This one's for the girls. So Pauline Hanson, she gained Liberal pre-selection for the Queensland seat of Oxley at the 1996 federal election. She was actually disendorsed by the Liberal Party shortly before the vote due to her controversial comments um, about Indigenous entitlements. But she went on to win the seat as an independent. Months after entering Parliament, she established One Nation. So One Nation is Pauline Hanson's minor party, basically. Federally, it's just important to note that the actual biggest, most popular time for the party was 1998. She's really been around a while. But she has she her actually, whole life. But she, you know, she actually went to jail for election fraud, and then she dropped off the face of the earth for a decade, and then came back as a senator. And then, obviously, in 2017, she had that famous burqa incident yeah. in, I mean, it's not, it's, I would just say infamous. infamous. Obviously her platform is anti-immigration, anti-multicultural. She's made some offensive remarks that are not worth repeating on the podcast. Um, she's actually currently facing federal court action under the Racial Discrimination Act from Green Senator Maureen Faruqi. So Pauline has is her own kettle of fish and she has her own problems. But I think it's worth noting that context when we get into Mark Latham. Mm-hmm. Mark Latham, also an interesting cat. And that, you know, actually what I mean is highly offensive man. But <laughs> interesting cat. Interesting cat. <laughs> Mark Latham has an extensive political history as well. He actually previously served as the leader of the Australian Labor Party and leader of the opposition from December of 2003 to January of 2005. He led the Labor Party to defeat against John Howard in the 2004 election, but... Led them to defeat. He led them to defeat. I think that's actually a good way of putting it. But it's so funny because I remember, I think it was Mark Humphreys put up a tweet um, recently when Mark was being offensive. He's always offensive in the recent years. But there was this tweet that was like, the one thing we thank John Howard for is gun limitations in Australia after... The Port Arthur Massacre. But what we should be thanking him for is stopping Mark Latham from achieving victory and becoming Prime Minister because Mark Latham just completely fell from grace. And then he just basically took to social media and became this far-right sort of commentator, but his entire platform now is just saying offensive things about anyone progressive. He made sense to buddy up with Pauline Hanson. Basically. And so he entered as a New South Wales Member of Parliament in 2019 and he was the leader of the Legislative Assembly in New South Wales for One Nation. But... He's been removed now. As much as Pauline Hanson is citing that it's election results and like the future of the party, basically it's more important to look at what's recently happened with Latham. When he tweeted earlier this year, it was an offensive homophobic remark towards independent MP Alex Greenwich. So we won't repeat it because it was sexually graphic and a slur, but Greenwich has launched a defamation case against Latham regarding the tweet and Latham is preparing to argue against legal action and claim that it was an honest opinion and a matter of public interest. But didn't Pauline Hanson, she came out and was like, yeah, I didn't I didn't back that tweet. This is the thing, is that Pauline came out at the time and said it was inappropriate, which is, I think, it's good. And I think it should be welcomed that she has come out and actually said that's not okay. But what's interesting is that that, that is where Pauline Hanson draws the line. 
It's like that homophobia problematic for you, but all these tweets you're making about large parts of the Australian population, you know, anyone who's not a white Australian. Apparently fine. Yeah. Apparently, you know, exactly. So it's important to say Latham remains a member of One Nation. He's just not the leader. He's been removed as leader. So I think Pauline Hanson's actually like preliminary leader at this point. But she also apparently when Latham made this offensive tweet and then deleted it, Hanson like tried to ring him and be like, can't you have to apologize, Mark? I just wouldn't take her calls. <laughs> just screamed. Imagine her calls. just putting your uh, do not disturb, <laughs> boss. <laughs> like, so sorry. So it's really offensive, but an anonymous source from the party told The Guardian, no one has been interested in what Latham has had to say following the Greenwich matter. If Peter Dutton couldn't do Sunrise, would he remain leader of the Liberal Party? And I think that's an interesting take. So it's like, yes, she can cite that it's like election results reasons, but if he's not being welcomed in the media space, how can he do his job? So is it about the offensive remarks or is it about his ability to do his job as well? Mm. It's a bit of everything, I would suggest, but overall... Highly offensive. He's got to go. I don't know how this party has relevance in Australia. Whoa. Rapper Tori Linez has been sentenced to a decade behind bars after shooting Megan Thee Stallion in the foot back in 2020. This story is huge and I kind of wasn't across it very much until recently, but there are so many big names involved and it's pretty insane. Yeah. So for a bit of background on this, Tori Linez was actually found guilty back in December last year of three felonies relating to the shooting. The shooting occurred in July 2020 as Megan and Tori and another friend of theirs and Tori's bodyguard left a party at Kylie Jenner's Hollywood home. Now, Megan claims that Tori fired a gun at the back of her feet and shouted for her to dance (gasps) as she walked away from a car. The shooting led to Megan needing to have surgery to remove the bullet fragments in her foot. Like, was she shot in the back of the foot? Why does that bother me? I thought it was on the tops. I don't know. That From a distance, she's walking away. Oh, that's awful. Anyway, for a little background on who Tori is, Tori Linez is a 31-year-old Canadian rapper. He's had three albums in the Billboard Hottest 100, signed to Benny Blanco's label, and has received a Grammy nomination for his song Love. And then I'm pretty sure we all know who Mick Thee Stallion is. But if not, she was everywhere. She went viral with her TikTok famous song, Savage, back in 2020. She's featured on songs with Doja Cat, Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa. She has won a Grammy. And what's crazy is that these two actually seem to be really good mates before this. Like, they went on lives together, they were photographed together. Drama! Anyway, back to the story. The sentencing for all of this didn't start until Monday, which is where Megan Thee Stallion testified in court that since I was viciously shot by the defendant, I have not experienced a single day of peace. Slowly but surely, I'm healing and coming back, but I will never be the same. She also told the courtroom that Tori had offered her $1 million to keep quiet about what happened and called her afterwards to apologise, claiming that he was just too drunk. What? But, like, just too drunk is like, I said something mean, not I shot you. I <laughs> like, shot you in the foot. It's insane. Tori has said in court, if I could turn back the series of events that night and change them, I would. The victim was my friend. The victim was someone I still care about to this day. I, obviously, he shot her in the foot. Terrible. But I'm confused as to why there's, like, a division about this story. Like, why is it yeah. publicly divisive? It is. This has really played. I think it's because it's played out mainly online yeah. as well. Like, this social media. And it's gone over three years. So there is so much back and forth to this story and so much like he said she said I've heard this like even at the courthouse the street was lined on either side with Megan fans and Tory fans like heckling each other holding signs saying like I support the guy that shot you like that's just well okay a lot of people don't actually believe 
Megan Stallion's version of events. And I think that is because at the very beginning of this story, she was accused of lying because her story changed quite early on. So at first she told police that she'd been hurt by stepping on broken glass. And it wasn't until later on Instagram she revealed that Tori had shot her. So she'd given a different report to police at first. Tori then, like, and again, this is happening over years, Mm. but then Tori tried to spread the story that they used to date and that she was just trying to frame him. She obviously denied that. And then they both actually released tracks about the case. So, like, he put out a song called Money Over Fallout and he accused Megan of trying to frame him while Megan said that she was speaking facts on her song, Shots Fired. Speaking facts. I just love the Shots, Shots fired. fired. I'm going to go home and listen to that in the car. And then it got, like, even more intense because then celebrities got involved in the feud. So Megan came out and criticised Drake because he released a song with 21 Savage called Circo Loco that seemingly referenced the shooting case and then Jojo and Kalani came out in support of Megan and the hashtag me too founder also wrote like an open letter oh. in support of Megan and then most recently and what you would have seen in the news that's brought this back this week as well is that Iggy Azalea the Australian rapper was one of many I think it was like 76 who submitted a letter of recommendation to the court in support of Tory. Oh, I don't understand Iggy Azalea. Like, why do you... Where does she come from? Yeah, wh- wh- and also just, why does she write a good character reference, basically? Well, I think she would just, she would know him. She said in her statement that she hopes the sentencing is transformational, not life-destroying. Okay, it's um, a positive spin on justice yeah, idea. Yeah, but then she came out, because she didn't, apparently she didn't know that that would go public. So then she tweeted being like, oh, I didn't know this, I didn't want to publicly make a statement. So she wanted her like support to be Quite. confidential, yeah, yeah, and she didn't want to actually. She wouldn't have publicly backed him if she knew the if the general population discovered that she wrote a good character reference for a shooter. That's what it sounded like, and what she said. I see. Anyway, now the controversy, sort of controversy, is that people are arguing a 10-year sentence for this is too harsh. Pretty much, Tory's attorney has argued that the. DNA evidence fell well short of industry standards and there was insufficient evidence to convict him. When the jury returned their guilty verdicts, Tory's dad um, screamed that the prosecutors were evil and part of a wicked system. His attorney also said that this is an example of someone being punished for their celebrity status and someone being utilised to send an example and he's not an example, he's a human being and that they plan to appeal. However, from like Megan's standpoint and what she said in an early interview to Elle magazine, which I thought was really interesting, was, I knew the truth and the indisputable facts would prevail. When the guilty verdict came, it was more than just a vindication for me. It was a victory for every woman who has been shamed, dismissed and blamed for a violent crime committed against them. Mm. So... It's just, I can't believe I wasn't keeping up with this story because it's... But it seems like there's just so many different avenues and, like... Yeah, I think you could rabbit hole a whole Tori Linez pro oh, argument and you could do the exact same for Megan. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the verdict is out. Yeah. The jury has sided with Megan. He's going to face 10 years in prison. Whoa, what a story. I had no idea about this before yesterday and I started reading your notes and I was like, holy sh... <laughs> like, I... We could do a limited series. Like... <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening so far. Um, We're going to bring back our Q&A segment. Thank you, everyone, who sent in questions. That was so nice and so overwhelming how many we got. So many. One of the ones that kept coming up was about Ariana Grande and that story last week. Yeah, and honestly, fair enough. I think I will say from us, we, we were doing pilot episodes for, like, 
a few weeks before we started. Yeah. And we'd been covering the Ariana Grande as like a practice story yes. like the week before. And so in our first recording of it, I made a big point out of being like, you know, obviously he's the one with a wife and child. And I think as a society, we have a tendency to put it back and villainize the woman. And so I think just in my head, I thought I'd already made the point. And then when I heard that back, I was like, oh, true. I forgot to say that again. But it's a really good point. And it should be made that he had a wife, he had a child. I'm not not blaming him in this at all. However, I think what made that story interesting is that it was looking at the fact that this wasn't this wasn't seemingly a one-off thing for Ariana. This was a pattern. And I yeah. think that was really interesting. I think that was what was hard to ignore with Totally. With and, Ariana. And actually the comments, most of them revolved around the use of the word homewrecker. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking, I actually agree that probably that's not a great term to use mm. because I think it places so much onus on the third party. For me, and this might be controversial and I don't expect people to agree, we shouldn't agree. We can have a diversity of opinion, <laughs> I believe. I think that the majority of the responsibility always falls to the person in the committed relationship, right? Mm. And you're the one that made the promise. You're the one that's established the boundaries of your relationship. And if you breach that, that is completely your responsibility. But I think that the person that is the third party that is engaged, if knowingly, in a relationship with someone who's in a monogamous exclusive relationship has breached a moral code. Yeah, I don't think that's a guilt-free no. situation. And I have a, and again, this could be controversial, but I do have a real issue with anyone that says, well, it's not my relationship. And it's true. It's not your relationship. But yeah. that doesn't make me feel good about you either. No, and I think that it's impossible to ignore that if you are continuously engaging in like a romantic, emotional, sexual relationship with someone in a committed relationship and you know that, to like completely shift blame off of yourself when you know you're causing hurt and harm. I think that's a bit ignorant, actually. But I do I do agree that it's probably not right to call someone a homewrecker. And you know what's interesting? I never thought of that. I hadn't really thought of that term mm. much, but I always thought it was could apply to either. Like, yeah. you're both wrecking something yes. in that. But I think so be- it's an interesting distinction that, yes, like that is meant on the person that is the third party. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, another thing <laughs> that actually blew my mind, and I have to shout out to Kathy and Chanel, who has clarified that Trump actually can run for president from, from prison. prison. And I, this is so funny to me because I remember when I listened back to our episode, kind of cringing because I was like, what a stupid question of me to ask. Like, no, and, and that's we, so silly. Of course he can't run for president. Yes, and, and, then, and then we, on Friday, I came in and you were like, so I've been looking into this and it actually doesn't assert an either way in the Constitution, so technically he can. Yeah. And so then thank you to these two followers who have clarified as well because we were like planning on following this one up because, yes, he can. And isn't that an he interesting grey area? Well, yeah, and when I looked into it, it has actually happened before. A century ago, a guy called Eugene V. Debs campaigned from a prison cell. However, this is going to be the biggest grey area, uncharted territory for the US because... That's never happened from someone who really legitimately stands a chance of becoming president. <laughs> They're not equipped for that. Oh, my God. I, but it's just like it's so far away from my brain that I can't even envision because that could happen next year. Yeah. Like I cannot even fathom that. Anyway, but fun fact. Fun fact? Fun fact for pub trivia. Thank you so much for everyone for sending that in. Please continue to send stuff in. Yes, it's so enjoyable to like have a little debate at the end. I love, I love it. it. If you'd like to send in a question yourself about this week or last week or whatever, please do. Our Instagram handle is bigsmalltalk underscore pod. 
Thank you so much for listening this week, everyone. Come back next Tuesday afternoon for a new episode. And remember to tap the bell, follow the pod, rate five stars, leave a review. Shameless. <laughs> Is there anything else? The <laughs> whole long list. And find us on Instagram. And find us on Instagram at bigsmalltalk underscore pod. It really helps us with our stats. So thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.